Um, good morning, everybody. This is my first time um, so as, as host, so you, you need to bear with me. And um, I'm very, very pleased this morning to be joined by uh, Max Torres, who is the Managing Director of Plata Energy from the United States. Um, Daniel Rahmat, who's a Senior Energy Consultant, joining us from Tehran. And Matthew Wright, who's Senior Freight Analyst at Kepler Shipping. So we have quite a lot to talk about today. Um, and one of the, the, the things that, that always comes up when we talk about energy, demand, etc., is China and what's happening with China. Oil prices seem to be sort of staying within their range above 70, below 75. They went up, they went down on dollar, on the fact that the Fed didn't raise interest rates. Um, so where do you see, um, Max, I'm going to start with you first. Where do you okay. see particularly the United States in this um, in this sort of new energy paradigm? Because obviously they are also exporting um, quite a lot of uh, sort of almost record amounts of, of crude oil and products, some of it going to China. Yes, Kate, thank you. No, in, indeed, indeed, it's going through the record productions and uh I think the uh, the forecast has been uh, in in the last months about recession. That, that you know the talk has been you know uh, you know what is going to happen with inflation. Inflation inflation was going you know crazy you know topping eight percent nine percent in some cases. So <clears throat> the whole uh, economic uh, you know conversation was kind of gloomy. You know uh, looking into into the next two years you know becoming a a recessive economy, and and probably that perception has changed in the last uh, you know a few last months. Let's say you know when when the Fed decided, I think uh, last week, you know that uh, they are not going to increase the the, the rates, and uh, and they said you know that they don't they don't discount that they may be increasing rates in the future, but uh, but but I think you immediately saw the reaction in the in the uh, in wall street you know in uh, in, in dow jones and, and nasta you know dow jones today is uh, above you know uh, 34 you know thousand i think it's 34500 and and, and nasta is uh, close to 2000 so you immediately saw the reaction you know of um, the investors you know and and also you saw uh, uh, a little jump in the oil price, maybe for different reasons, but uh, but you also saw immediately a jump in the oil price, uh, nearly 3% in, in the last two, two, three days. So probably the, the, the whole economic perception is changing. I think, uh, I think people are moving out of this uh, uh, catastrophic, you know, perception that we're going to move into a recession uh, and, and probably that we're going to have a sort of a soft landing in the economy. At the same time, as you said, big production, you know, and I think uh, that's another important factor here uh, because the price of oil is keeping in a range that uh, is not going to affect inflation. So I think the the, the whole set of, uh, of indicators are are good, and I think uh, we are moving into the next month uh, with a different perception that we had probably in the last year or so. You know that we were going, uh, you know, immediately into into some kind of a, of a recession, uh, you know, mindset. Um, thank you, but you know, if you look at Europe, obviously they've raised their rates and they've given an indication right. that there's going to be the ECB is going to raise interest rates even further because they don't see, mm -hmm. you know, they. 
they don't see the target, the, the two percent target achieved. I'm going to right. move on to 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 Matt because we've got this new um, Saudi Arabian cut of one million barrels a day coming coming uh, in July. In addition to the voluntary cuts that have already been been announced since um, since April, uh, but at the same time, DLCC rates are rising. As we were talking about this earlier, and I think that, that you know people are interested in knowing why VLCC rates are you know. Um, have have risen. Yeah, absolutely. It it almost it's it, it's a little bit surprising when you look at the broader fundamentals of what's happening in the market at the moment. So you know, normally around this time of year, you get a bit of a summer lull when it comes to VL rates, and and actually that was sort of progressing as you would normally expect. Um, China was in peak maintenance last month, so you normally expect buying to be down, and and just generally. That's a, it's a sort of a, a bit of a quiet period. I mean, I would say a you know quiet period in the context of where rates have been over the last year. So still pretty strong, and yet this week, as you mentioned, rate you know rates have absolutely rocketed. You know we're now at you know between eighty and ninety thousand dollars a day, depending on the type of vessel you've got, which is up from around thirty last week. So really, really quite substantial increases. Uh, there's a couple of things going on there. I think there was some. Um, some short-term tightness in availability. Um, there was a few fixtures coming out of the US Gulf, and the US Gulf really is a very, very sensitive market in terms of the reaction on VLCC rates. Um, you know, it's become a much, much bigger player in terms of the impact it has on overall VLCC market. Um, the ton miles generated from the US are actually, you know, just shy of what Saudi's Saudi's achieving. So, you know. Compare even though exports are you know at more than less than half of what Saudi is just the just the voyage distance so that is definitely a factor. Also, I think the other thing is that China's continued buying during maintenance, mm. um, and even though uh, they're not running as much, so so that sort of the impact has been a build in inventories and you know crude inventories are up thirty million barrels a day this month. Um, they're at a two year high. So I think the, the main takeaway on the VLs is this is it's a great, it, you know, from a, it's a great period at the moment, but it's not going to last all summer. China has more than enough crude in storage. And and if anything, it could sort of um, result in a, in a in, we're sort of delaying the lull, so to speak. Of course, we also have um, the, the production rising from the countries in, in Africa, we have West African countries, you've got Nigeria, Angola, which uh, are increasing their production, and they're the ones that weren't really are producing a quota, they want to expand their, uh, well, at least Nigeria wants to expand its, um, its export um, infrastructure. But moving on, on the same kind of subject, um, I'm going to, uh, to move on um, to Iran. And... Um, Daniel, I wanted to ask you, there, there was a lot of, there's been a lot of chatter about, you know, the possibility of a deal between Iran and, uh, and, and the United States. The wording is very interesting, you know, is it a temporary agreement? Is it something that is not part of the, you know, the broader nuclear deal? And um, there was, a, you know, I mean, Iran has continued to export oil despite the sanctions. And from what we understand, they, even their floating storage has, is is much less than it used to be. So Iran wouldn't really be in a position to flood the markets anyway. Um, so could you tell us where where you see it from your point of view? You know, sitting in Tehran, 
Um, what are the prospects of an agreement? Um, is it overblown? Is it, um, you know, is it likely to happen anytime soon? Yeah. <clears throat> Hello, everybody. I think that the, the nuclear deal, uh, despite Iran is exporting so much crude, maybe 1.3 million barrels per day, something, uh, mostly to China, the nuclear deal is still an important uh, bottleneck for the future of Iranian economies and its, its politics, everything. Because Iran is now uh, monopolized its export, ex it exclusively exporting most of its oil to China. And Iran needs to diversify its markets because the leverage this issue has offered to China is very huge. It means that Iran cannot survive uh, in any other way than the China, and, and that, will, that will reduce Iran's political and geopolitical capacities in the region. This is what the Iranian government does not want at all. At the same time, Chinese companies are not investing in Iranian oil and gas sector, which is becoming a crucial problem, a critical issue for Iran right now. As you know, maybe we have talked before about that Iran is, is that the crisis in Iranian gas sector is looming and also Iran needs huge investment in uh, upstream sector. And, and, and uh, there are many other technical issues we can discuss about. But the, but the essence of every Iran's effort for getting to a sort of deal with the West is to diversify its markets, getting more investment and things like that. But, but about, about the reality of the talks, I think there are some steps we need to look forward if these steps are realized, if Iran, Iran and the US take these steps, we will know that they're going on a right approach towards making a deal whether it's a temporary one or a long-term one. The first of, of them is releasing Iranian assets in, the, in, in Iraq, uh, Korea, elsewhere, and, and also releasing the American Iranian uh, citizens who are present here uh, sentenced as, spy, as, as spies or something. So I believe uh, if we look, we need to wait some, some maybe one or two weeks to see what is going on in the negotiations regarding the frozen assets. And uh, I hope some kind of deal is made because that would be both good for the Iranian people and also for the security in the region. I think the, the, the Iranian-Saudi rapprochement would be a very significant positive sign that Iran at least has satisfied or somehow reached the sort of agreement with its neighbors, which were known in the Iranian domestic politics as a sort of major obstacle towards making a deal with the best. So uh, I'm optimistic about this. I was going to ask you about that, actually. Yes, the rapprochement, which uh, was, was brokered by, by China. So it comes back to China. And we saw a few days ago that there was a huge presence of Chinese business in, in Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. uh, we're seeing some effort to um, you know to sort of reduce tensions in in in, in Yemen it seems that the, the, the ceasefire seems to be holding so I think there's a positive outcome and of course we now have the Saudi uh, crown prince in in France um, which you know you, you, there's a lot of movement the, the sort of the, the geopolitical aspect is really interesting but right. um, I think I think the the the, uh, the there are many fields Iran and Saudi can, can work on together, cooperate. For example, we have many shared oil and gas fields with them. So that would be a great opportunity to work together. And if you tie the benefits and the interests of the two countries, uh, it would be harder to make, make it broken later.
I mean, one of the issues that came up was um, in, in the IEA's medium-term report is that of the, you know, as, as demand declines by 2028, they see demand decline, demand growth declining to about 400,000, and that the additional supply that will come in a shrinking market, uh, apart from the core Gulf states, will come from Iran and Iraq, but Iran is not going to be a major contributor. It's going to be mainly from Iraq. But I wanted to ask, um, to go back to Max about, where we see production growth um, coming from the Americas, for example, you've just been in, in Latin America. So could you tell us what the prospects are? Because we keep saying Brazil, Guyana, you know, offshore. Um, where, where do we stand in terms of su supply growth from, from that region? Yes, indeed. Indeed, the, uh, you know, the, the, the obvious candidates are Guyana. Guyana, you know, is, is said to be producing 1.2 million barrels, you know, in, in, in 2027. 20, uh, <clears throat> and it's going to grow probably to 2.5 million in, in, in the next, uh, you know, subsequent year. So, you know, Guyana probably is the, the, the country that's going to grow uh, most. Uh, but uh, Brazil, obviously, Brazil. Uh, you know, the border Brazil is going to continue to grow. You know, they they have a target of four, four million barrels. Um, so I think the the production growth that we're going to see for sure is going to be Guyana and and Brazil. Um, I still have some hopes that uh, Venezuela will recover eventually. I think uh, we have uh, primary elections in Venezuela. You know, in a couple of weeks. Uh, maybe we'll start seeing some uh, some indications of uh, you know some changes there. Uh, you know maybe Venezuela could could be uh, showing us some some hope of uh, recovering supply in in, in the future. <clears throat> uh, Venezuela has the, the capacity to to produce uh, additional two million barrels. You know for sure. <clears throat> right now it's producing less than than half a million. Um, so you know, I think the 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 usual you know candidates are Guyana and Brazil uh, for sure. Uh, I think the the prospects are uh, Venezuela and, and Mexico. Uh, you know, I still hope that uh, Mexico can also uh, recover and, uh, and and go back to to their you know uh, two million barrels uh, what they what what they used to produce you know historically. Um, but unfortunately, uh, that needs profound changes, you know, especially in Venezuela. Uh, I, I don't see Mexico taking the, the, the road, you know, of recovery, unfortunately. Uh, so, you know, uh, if there is a political uh, change uh, in Argentina, there's elections in, in October. Uh, apparently, we're going to see uh, a government from, from the right, you know, in, in December. Uh, so probably Vaca Muerta could be another candidate for, you know, some, some supply, you know, and uh, they are finishing a new pipeline, you know, uh, uh, for gas production. It's going to be domestic first, but I think eventually it's going to, it's going to provide some, some LNG. Uh, it's, it's right now, you know, being exported to, to Chile. Uh, so I think uh, Vaca Muerta could be also another candidate for, you know, uh, you know future supply in, in, in the Americas, you know, in, in general. But again, Brazil and Guyana are the, the sure bets, you know, for, for Latin America. Um, I'm, I'm going to, you, you just mentioned LNG and we were talking about DLCCs and we're talking about oil demand growth slowing, but LNG I think has a longer, you know, gas is going to have a longer shelf life 
in the transition. Right. Matt, I was going to ask you what happens to all these, you know, as we transition, as we start talking about exporting more green hydrogen, green ammonia, blue blue hydrogen, you know, blue blue ammonia. Where, how do you see the tanker market developing? What happens to all these VLCCs and, you know, the, 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 the dirty and clean tanker? How do you see that developing? Um, I think I think they've still got a very long life. I think the the uh, transition fuels are going to play an important, you know, an increasingly important role. Um, and we've got, you know, new vessels being built to facilitate that. But um, we are, you know, we're still a way away from um, peak oil. And then even post peak oil, it doesn't mean it just ends. We've got decade, you know, we've still got a very long period of that decline. And so, you know, actually, if you look at the, the tanker order book at the moment, it's very, very low, historically low. So for VLCCs, they still got a very long life. People are taking into account the fact that, you know, peak oil is coming and people are unsure about around the, uh, the type of vessels to order in terms of what sort of fuels, future fuels we're going to be burning. So that's part of the reason why we do have a sort of a low tanker order book, particularly on the VLCC. So I do, you know, I think VLCCs actually have a very strong outlook for the next two to three years. But um, inevitably, like the whole refining system, we're going to have to manage that decline in terms of incremental capacity, you know, over the coming years. And of course, we need to decarbonize that sector as well. And it's, you know, it's not happening fast enough, I don't think. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, we've got in, in the EU, we've got the ETS coming in from January next year, which is going to add, you know, I think carbons, last time I looked, was around $90 a tonne. So you know, extremely high costs that are, the only option for ship owners is to pass that on. So we're, we're, we're moving into a world where you're going to have to accept a higher cost for the transportation of goods. So, you know, from, from an emissions point of view. Um, so I think that's, that's just going to be, you know, baked into freight rates um, from, from next year. Um, the, and, and, you know, what, that will form a factor in terms of decision-making around what fuels uh, owners are, are choosing when they're ordering new vessels. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that brings us to sort of talk about what's happening in the carbon market, the carbon trading market. You've got the EU's uh, the carbon border adjustment mechanism coming into effect, and that's obviously going to impact products and, uh, you know, and, and whatever is being shipped into um, imported. And we saw a story, it was on, on today's digest about Saudi Ramco buying carbon credit, credits at the largest ever auction. Um, does anybody, either any of you have any expertise to talk about? whether this is the way forward. I mean, is it really a, um, is, is it going to reduce emissions or is it just shifting emissions from one place to another? Who would like to take that one on? Anybody, please? Or we move on to something else. I'll, I'll dodge that one as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it is it is one of the things that I've been reading about a lot is that, you know, we've got this, you know, huge expansion, we're getting more investment this year, according to the IA's investment report, we're getting more investment in renewables and solar than we are in oil. At the same time, they say, you know, there's enough investment at the moment to meet, um, to meet rising demand. Hang on, where did that go? So, um, okay. I'm going to, but, but the, the, that the grid is not actually, we, we've got all these new wind projects, but the grid can't accommodate them yet. So, 
Um, all right, so there's a survey question and we're going back to China for this one. So optimism in higher energy demand from China after a 15% hike in refinery throughput in May is a sign that the second half of the year is going to be tight for oil markets. And I suppose this goes back to, um, you know, do you agree or disagree? Um, and I suppose it goes back to the fact that both the IEA and OPEC have a very strong demand growth in the second half of the year, about 2 million barrels a day, which is uh, which I think has surprised quite a few analysts who say it may be a bit too much given China. So um, can this is the, uh, the survey question. So optimism in high energy demand from China after a 15% hike in refinery throughput in May is a sign second half of the year is going to be tight for oil market. I think we spoke about this earlier. And I think Matt, you mentioned that they were coming out of maintenance refineries. So is it a real, you know, is it a real indicator of demand or is it just that they've come back from, from maintenance and they've been given, the, um, the refiners have been given a higher quota, import quota? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's a combination. So they're, they're still not even out of maintenance. So there's still more to come. But I think they, you know, they they have been. Um, so main, I would say for context, Chinese maintenance this year was not as severe as it's been historically for a couple of reasons. One, the absolute level of um, capacity, refining capacity is higher this year than obviously it's ever been. You, you think new refineries online and the offline share was not as large as it has been in the past. So so. I think there's also that part of it is that when you normally say spring maintenance in China, you expect um, it to have quite a severe effect. But actually, we're hitting still new record levels in terms of refinery runs, like you said, around 15, I think it was around 15 million barrels a day. So um, but I think we also need to be very cautious about the second half of the year for China, because, um, you know, we we are seeing some 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 red numbers coming out of uh, out of the country in terms of it's economic outlook, it's industrial outlook, um, commercial outlook. So there's there's a lot to be to sort of be wary of when it, when when we're looking at China. I still think you know that the, the post COVID bounce is not proved to be as substantial as I think people were expecting. And um, turning you know turning to the freight market as I as I tend to do, I think we should be wary about the second half of the year in terms of expecting too much from China. I think, like I said, there's very high inventories. And I think they, um, you know, they're gonna they're gonna draw on those um, more than on the import side. But uh, yeah, I think there's um, when we're definitely not suggesting that there's anything um, any negative contraction within China. But I think the growth is going to be less impressive than than people initially thought. Uh, we talk about China, but of course India is you know is now sort of about to overtake. Um, uh, China as uh, as an oil importer, well, not the same amount of oil, obviously, but I mean they are the, in in terms of growth. So, what about Indian demand? I mean, where is that pushing the market? Is that is that going to be a significant driver as well? Because we talk so much about China, but not so much about about India. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, absolutely. I think India's. I mean, India's um, domestic demand is hitting new record levels. Um, imports, it's obviously been probably the, the biggest story in terms of crude imports over the last year, in terms of what they're taking from Russia and the way that they've changed, single-handedly changed the, the tanker market in the last year. So I would say, yeah, India is, India is, you know, over the last year been a much bigger factor than China in terms of the 
creating change, definitely. I'm going to come back to you now, but obviously a lot of the a lot of the oil going to, to India is 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 Russian oil because you know it's discounted and uh, and and I wanted to ask uh, you know how is that affecting uh, Daniel because Iran is also a big supplier to, to 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 both China and 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 India or it was a supplier to India but I think they've been sort of squeezed out of the market a little bit. Yeah. You know, uh, the you market... be an investor in upstream in, in, in Iran. That's so there are relations. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, you know, uh, India used to be one of the major oil destin oil oil markets for Iranian Iranian crude, and 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 later after Iran was sanctioned by the US, uh, Iraqi oil was somehow replaced by Iranian. So Iraq surpassed Iran, and, and Indians prefer to replace the Iraqi oil with Iran. They are technical. And also, also logistic reasons. But later, as you, as you just mentioned, the, 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 the Russians started to export huge amounts of uh, discounted oil to India, and that that made a significant problem for Iraqis because they had a lot of oil and they had plan, they have they have ambitious plans for increasing their production and they're investing a lot in their upstream. And now they're facing problem for marketing their oil. I think. India would be a very critical issue for both Iran and Iraq. If the sanctions are removed, Iran is going to Iran is going to flow the Indian market, maybe with discounted oil, because they just want to come go back to the market. But they also the Iranian IOC has also has also considerations and concerns about if they export discounted oil to India, they are going to expect discounted oil forever. So the 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 policy how they should deal with India is an important issue. And also the Pakistan, which is between Iran and India, is just, is just another, another issue. Pakistanis are starving for gas, but they have no money for paying. They're also asking for Iranian crude and, and other, other refined products, even under the sanctions. They have some agreements for barter deals with Iran for refined products, but they're not able to pay that. And, and you know, Iran has security concerns with Pakistan, and they're also another another important issue Iran needs to consider when it wants to go back to the Indian market because they need to keep their neighbors satisfied. So Iran is, Iran, I think the Indian market's demand is going to increase based on the last year's report of OPEC. I think they're going to continue increasing their demand by 2045 something. So I think India is going to be the, the most important player in the region because they, their, their policies towards the market is, not, is less based on resiliency. They're mainly considering the price, but in, in the Chinese case, mostly they're considering energy security and their economic resiliency. So I think the Indians are going to be uh, another, another important player without political concerns, less political concerns they have than Chinese, yeah. Thanks, um, is Max, oh, is Max, you're still with us. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, sitting in, in, in the um, sort of, the main oil hub of, of the United States and, and relations with China, between the US and China. I'm going to give you the final word before we go to the results. So very, very quickly, what do you think? Do you think these tensions with China are going to be eased with Blinken's visit? Is it, um, what is the view from, from your end, from your part of the world? Um, I think that uh, yeah, I think this this visit is going to try to ease the uh, the situation between the two countries, but uh, but I don't think that that's uh, you know it's going to change you know in, in in the short term or 
uh, I think these tensions are going to keep increasing, and I think we're going to see, you know, uh, further escalation of, uh, you know, these these confrontations, uh, especially in, uh, you know, in in the, the light of what's going on in in Taiwan and and, and those uh, those situations around, the, you know, Taiwan especially. So, you know, I think uh, this is also related to the Ukrainian war as well. So, you know, what position China is going to take with respect to the Russians. Uh, so I think uh, this, this is a, a, a different end, you know, type of uh, visit, you know, trying to, 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 to mingle between the situation between the Russians and, uh, and the Ukrainians. But, uh, but, you know, to be honest, I don't think that this visit is going to make a, a lot of difference. Thanks. I think I'm just trying to see if the survey result is ah yeah there it is okay so uh, the uh, the eyes have it it's seventy eight percent believe that there is optimism that the hike in refinery um, uh, throughputs in May in China is going to be uh, is going to lead to a tight oil market and twenty two percent disagree so um, that's where we are I want to finish off thank you all for there's so much more we I'd love to talk about but we're running out of time so thank you very much for for taking part today and um, I hope to see you again the next time